Father, we thank you that indeed your word is food for famished ones and freedom for us. Thank you for the riches that we have here. Would you please speak to us by your Holy Spirit? And would you enable us especially to trust you and to keep trusting you day by day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is the most repeated command in the Bible? Many people are surprised to discover that it's not love your neighbour as yourself or, or something like that. But it is, in fact, do not be afraid. It pops up all over the place in different ways. Do not fear, do not be afraid. And maybe the reason that it's repeated in different contexts all through the Bible is something to do with that disjunction that we often feel between what we know to be true and what we feel day by day if we're seeking to follow Jesus. So why is it that we can find ourselves standing in church, singing our hearts out on Sundays, you know, things like, I will trust in him alone, you are my rock In times of trouble, we trust in him, our shield and our defender. And then we sing those words on Sunday, and no doubt, if we're trusting Jesus, we mean them. But then on Monday, we're back to worrying about everything. Maybe about things like Brexit, and what's going on in the wider world. Maybe closer to home, about our relationships. Can I trust this person? Our money, how will I cope? Our health, what will the results say? Our families, are the children going to work out all right? Our death, perhaps not just fearing for ourselves, but also for those we may leave behind. And then we can worry too when things are going well, because they're going too well, so something must be about to go wrong. And maybe sometimes we worry about little things. So like the colour of the new coat of paint in the kitchen or exactly which washing machine has the best reviews. Why do we worry about those things? Because perhaps there are so many things over which we know we have absolutely no control that when we find something we can vaguely control, we obsess about that instead. Well, if we're forgiven people, we know the future is secure. That's what the Bible tells us. Why then do we still struggle? And what can we do about it? That is our big question for this evening. I guess it's a question everybody struggles with, actually, in this world. Would anybody say they're completely confident about the future? Christian or not? And if perhaps you're not yet a Christian here this evening, I I wonder what possible answer you can give to this question. Or if it's a question you have pondered for yourself But what we want to see this evening is that Christians want to be able to say that we trust God. We believe that that is true. We believe there is a God who is in charge, who's sovereign over the whole universe and even over the details of our lives. But tonight we're looking at why that can be challenging. And also at why that's the best possible thing that we can do, whatever the circumstances are that we face. Now we're going to look at this account of the Israelites struggling and learning to trust God in the book of Exodus. 
Remember, the Old Testament points forward to Christ. It does that in many different ways. But one of the ways it does that is by giving us pictures of the gospel, of the Christian life, that are then later fulfilled in Christ. And one of those pictures is of God's people being saved out of Egypt and taken to the promised land. And maybe you know the story. They're rescued from the angel of death by the blood of the lamb, which is painted on their doorposts. And then they're taken through the Red Sea. But then what happens? Well, the distance to the promised land of Canaan from Egypt is relatively short. I don't know if you've ever looked on a map. It wouldn't take long to get there. It would take a few months to walk there, which is what they had to do. But they don't get there immediately. It takes them 40 years. 40 years of wandering in the desert. Now, what is the point of all that wandering around? Why, not just, why doesn't God just take them straight there? And it's the same kind of question we have maybe about our lives today. Well, we've been saved by the blood of Jesus. Why aren't we just made perfect right now? Why isn't heaven here on earth straight away? Why do we still have to wait for what God promises? Well, the answer for them then and for us now is that God had a whole bunch of things that they needed to learn in the desert. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. Three lessons for people who worry. And so here's the first thing, the desert. You can see on the back of the notice sheet, the desert. So verse 1, have a look at that. The whole Israelite community set out from... Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which um, is actually just the name of the desert. It's not a description of what goes on there, although it's a pretty apt name for it. And it's between Elam and Sinai. It says on the 15th day of the second month after they come out of Egypt in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. See whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So, they're there in the desert. The desert, it turns out, is a fantastic picture of the Christian life. Without it, we wouldn't understand what is going on as we go through life. In fact, even with it, we can still fail to understand. So what is the desert? What is the idea of being in the desert meant to tell God's people? Well, it's meant to tell us that we're not yet in Canaan. We're not yet in the promised land. We're not yet at our destination, the new heavens and the new earth. What we're in now is the desert. But the problem is that Hampstead or North London or wherever it is that we happen to live doesn't really look very much like a desert. Not just sort of geographically in terms of the scenery, but actually in our everyday lives and in the lives that we manage to sort of make for ourselves in this society we live in, in the West, in the 21st century, we often live as if heaven is meant to be right here, right now. And in fact, I think that would be very much the kind of assumption of, of, of most people living in the world. The idea is we want to make life as, much, as, as good as it possibly can be, and that's the point. 
And so even for Christians, there can be this assumption that things ought to go right, and when they don't, there's a real sense of outrage. It's not fair. And we might even find ourselves sounding a little bit like the Israelites in verse 3. Well, what's the point then of being a Christian if you still get ill or you lose your job or you watch your loved ones suffer or whatever it might be? A few years ago, our summer holiday was basically ruined by one of the children getting chickenpox in Spain. And you can't fly with chickenpox. So basically, we had this, we arrived day one, chickenpox erupted and we kind of knew it was coming but there was nothing we could do we just had to get there and then that meant we spent all the time that we were there in Spain trying to convince the Spanish doctors to give us a certificate that would allow us to get on the plane to go home again and it very quickly took us down that road of thinking well what is the point of this you know we're Christian workers we need a holiday this is costing lots of money and we're going to need another holiday to recover from this one and so on. Now I'm sure everybody's had experiences like that. But you know the kind of thing. I thought God was meant to be on our side. But God says to us very patiently, don't get confused. You're not there yet. You've been rescued from sin and death, just like the Israelites, through Jesus' death and resurrection, but you haven't arrived at your destination yet. Life in the here and now isn't just some kind of first-class departure lounge. Now, I went and sat in, in one at the airport um, one time when I was there. You know, I didn't realise I wasn't supposed to be in there, obviously. But um, you know, I went in, I found this myself in this place, and it was quiet and it's peaceful. And you can charge your phone, and there are oranges on the table, and fridges full of drinks, and you can just sort of go over and help yourself whenever you feel like it, and you put your feet up in comfort. And, Tap your fingers reading the paper and wait for the main event. And we so easily think that life really ought to be like that. You know, if we're waiting for heaven, it still ought to be a really nice experience. Because that's kind of what I deserve, we think. But God says, no, actually, you're in the desert. And the purpose of the desert is completely different from that. It's not a waiting room, it's a training ground. It's a place of testing. It's a place of preparation for what is to come. So look, verse 4, what's the point? I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. See, my number one priority, generally, all other things being equal, my number one priority is my own personal comfort. Don't know about about you. And because I'm a bit like this, I tend to think that what I think about the circumstances I'm in is correct. So if I think my personal comfort comes first, then, well, obviously the God of the universe would think the same as me, wouldn't he? But surprise, surprise, he is God and I'm not. And neither are you. And that's a good thing. Because God has got something in mind which is way more important than my personal comfort. He wants me to trust him. That is what will get me ready for eternity. Because that actually is what eternity is all about. What is eternity all about? Well, well, Jesus summed it up in the prayer that he prayed that we read about in in John chapter 17. 
just before he died. He's praying this extraordinary prayer that we get to kind of listen in on. And he says, eternity is knowing God. You know, forget all the details of what it will be like and, and, and how we will live and where, you know, exactly the details of things. No, what you need to know is that in eternity you will know God face to face. And what does knowing God mean? Well, knowing God means trusting him and believing that what he says is true. That's, that's relationships 101, isn't it? Trust. And so that is what we're meant to be doing as we are being prepared for eternity. Learn to trust our Father. And it's here that the character then of God really becomes important because it's here that we need to remember that God isn't merely someone who's kind of the boss and sovereign and in charge and kind of, you know, saying, well, no, sorry, I know you want it to be like this, but no, it's going to be like that and you jolly well are going to have to lump it. It's not quite that, is it? Because what is God like? What is his character? No, he's good and he's loving, and he's wise. And therefore he knows what is best for me, and he knows what is best for you, and he knows that better than we know ourselves. And it's not even that that he's in charge and he cares for us, he also knows the wisest and best way to achieve what is best for us. So sometimes it feels like, you see, that you know, God is offering you, you know, maybe a free holiday in the Caribbean, but he hasn't covered the travel. And you're going to have to swim there through freezing cold open ocean. You know, heaven is coming, and it's going to be lovely when you get there, but till then, yeah, it's a bit miserable. You're going to be by yourself. Sorry about that. But no, he has the best and wisest ends in mind and he has the best and wisest and most loving means to achieve those ends how do we know that how how can we believe that is that really true well we know that because of the lengths to which god has gone to get us to the promised land sending his own son to die for us in our place You see, if he's done that, he's not going to mess up the last part of the process. He's going to get us there safely and in the best possible way. Even if we don't understand how that can be quite the case, even if that takes us through tough times, things that feel tough, things that we wouldn't choose for ourselves along the way, the journey through the desert is the best possible journey in order to prepare you the best possible way for the best possible relationship with God that lasts forever. That is why we're in the desert. Not about personal comfort, it's not about having heaven now, not about having an easy life, it's about being prepared for eternity. And the trials that we face are an opportunity for us to grow in our trust. So, that is the first thing we need to see, the desert. Then... There's a further thing which is really helpful to see here, the manna. So that's the second thing, the manna. What does God do for the Israelites in the desert? He gives them manna and quail, and the emphasis is on the manna. Now there was an idea going around at one point that the word kangaroo, we can check Zach, we might have an opinion on this, but the word kangaroo, we were told, meant I don't understand you in an Aborigine language. Because that's what the Aborigines said to Captain Cook when he pointed at a kangaroo to ask what it was. They went, I don't understand you. And they went, oh, kangaroo. But that's not true. 
According to Wikipedia, some linguist somewhere has discovered that kangaroo is just the Aborigine word for kangaroo. Sorry about that. is isn't quite as interesting. But it's a bit like this with the manor, or not like that with the manor, because manor means, what is that? Verse 15. They said to each other, what is it? And that literally is the word manner. Manner, what is it? What is this stuff that's come out of the sky? Because here is God's miraculous provision for the moaning Israelites. They pick up and think, what is this stuff? We've never seen this before. What is it? Manner. It's so obviously out of place in the desert that there is no way that it could have come through natural means. Here is God demonstrating to the Israelites beyond all doubt that their bread comes from him and him alone. That is the point of this manna lying there on the ground. So can you see he's doing more than just feeding them? He's doing more than satisfying their hunger. He is teaching them about trusting him. That is his big concern. Not so much that they don't go hungry, but that they should trust him to provide for their hunger and everything else. And so he shows them that by providing something that is obviously miraculous. And then he shows them that by regulating how they gather the manna. Each morning they were to go out and collect as much as they needed for that day. As much as they needed, verse 18, everyone had exactly what they needed that day. But no one was to keep that until morning. It was one day at a time. One day at a time. And that is God's big lesson for his people. Do you see, he's not teaching them a technique to get what they want. You know, press these buttons in this way and you will get exactly what you need. That's not what he's trying to do. He's saying, no, what you've got to do is you've got to rely on me one day at a time. And Jesus taught his followers to do exactly the same thing in the Lord's Prayer, as we talked about at the beginning of the service. Give us today our daily bread. Not here is a lump sum that will keep you going for the rest of your life, or the rest of this week, or even, or the rest of this year. Give us today our daily bread. That is the lesson of the manna. And it's a really hard lesson for worrying people to learn. The Israelites struggled with it. They decided to do their own thing. They decided to keep part of it till morning. But when they did that, it was full of maggots and began to smell. Verse 20. And you might think, well, come on, this is ridiculous. I mean, what is God doing playing funny tricks with their food like this? But the food is not the point. The point is, will they trust God to provide day by day? Or will they want to take matters into their own hands so that they don't have to rely on him? And when we take this together with Jesus' words about tomorrow, we can apply this to much more than food and clothing. We can apply it to everything. A particular time in my life when I faced uncertainty was when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease around the time that Zachary was born. And I was facing a major operation and um, they, they couldn't tell us exactly how things would turn out and the time scale of things and you know, things were crazy at home as it is when you have a new baby. And I was desperate for a road map for the future. You know, you can have the best medical care and you can have everything spelt out. You can have all the balance of probabilities kind of in your favour. But you'll still be asking, what if? 
What if such and such happens? What if the news is bad? What if they've somehow made a mistake on all the scans that they've done? What will I do? How will I cope with it? How will my family cope with it? And God doesn't tell us the answer to those questions. On the whole. He is much more interested in something bigger than that. He wants us to trust him today. That's the point of the manner, do you see? He says he will give us enough grace for today and he promises then that he will be with us tomorrow and he will do the same again. That's what the Israelites had. As each day went by, no one went hungry. There was always enough. But as they looked to the days to come, they didn't have manna in their barns, as it were. So it's all right, guys, we've got that stock, that's going to keep us going for a few weeks. No, they had to say, no, tomorrow we're going to have to trust God again. And we're going to have to believe his promise again, wherever that takes us. And that is what God gives us. This is the testimony of countless Christians who've gone through suffering. There was a missionary called uh, Helen Rosevear, who died a few years ago as as an old lady, but she'd been a a missionary in Africa, and she twice faced firing squad in her life and survived both times. And do you know what she said? It took her months to get over not dying on both occasions. Do you think when she was growing up and thinking of serving God abroad that she looked forward to the idea of standing in front of a firing squad? Do you think she knew what she would do in that situation? How she would respond? No, we kind of think, well, what would I do if someone pointed a gun at my head and said, do you believe in Jesus? I don't know. I pray I know what the right answer would be, but what we can know and what she found was that God gave her the grace to trust him in that situation. That is the manner. He did it for her and he has done it for countless other Christians and he will do it for us too in those times. That is the manner. No roadmap, just a promise to be there. And then thirdly, he teaches us about the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Just as they think that they're getting the hang of this manner thing, God introduces one further thing to keep them trusting, to keep them on their toes. When it comes to the Sabbath, everything changes. Now, you must keep some till morning, because tomorrow there won't be any. Tomorrow is a day of rest. And what is God doing? Well, once again, he's using every means possible to teach his people that what really matters is whether they trust him, because life in the land is ultimately all about relationship. That's what he's preparing them for. So why the Sabbath? Well, what do you think would happen if every day without fail, the Israelites went out and found manna? What would happen is they would start to forget where the manna came from. They would start to think they had a right to the manna, rather than it being a gracious gift. They would take it for granted. And with that, they would take the giver for granted, and they would stop trusting God. You know, it's a bit like children at Christmas. After you've seen the eighth set of relatives, or whatever it is, it's turned from kind of utter surprise at being given presents 
to uh, people, you know, they're marching into the house and saying, where are the presents? Because this is what always happens now. We go to people's houses and they give us presents, so we expect that to keep happening, do you see? So the Sabbath is one more way that God uses to say, this is about trusting and relying on me. And whether Sunday is a Sabbath for Christians isn't really the point here. The principle of Sabbath is absolutely vital for us to grasp. And actually, this might be a really practical step we can take in the face of worries, whatever they are. We can force ourselves to put them down regularly. Of course, you're going to have to come back to them. They'll still be there on Monday morning or or whatever it is. But by putting them down, we say to ourselves and others and God, it doesn't all depend on me. You know, it said, if you work seven days a week without a break, you work one day without God's approval. God is in charge. I need to leave this with him. So if you're planning for some big event coming up, big change in your life, big thing that's kind of consuming all your your energy and your, your, your thoughts, well, you know, some uh, big exam or um, a piece of uh, coursework or whatever, well, don't make it a 24-7 thing. Put it down on Sundays, perhaps. You know, if we have children facing exams, help them to take a break. It doesn't all depend on us. Maybe health or or money is keeping us up at night. Or have a day where you don't Google anything about the problem. Do you see? It's with God. I can trust him. Of course I'm going to have to do things. Of course I can't just close my eyes and pretend the problem isn't there. But there's enough days in the week and there's enough time and I will take the time to put it down and trust him with the details. We're in the desert. We've been saved, but we're not there Yet, And we're here in the desert, in the particular circumstances we find ourselves in right here, right now. We're here for a reason. When we mess up, when we struggle, when we refuse to trust God as we know we should, we go back to the cross. We remember the one who struggled for us. We we receive God's forgiveness afresh. When we have failed to trust God, we have a saviour who did trust God perfectly at every point, in every way. He was the perfect Israel in the desert. He literally went into the desert for 40 days. And he, where Adam messed up in the garden, where Israel messed up in the desert, Jesus obeyed perfectly. And he did that for us. So we can go to him when we mess up and know that we have forgiveness and a fresh start. And another day in the desert to learn how to trust our Father. That's what we're here for. He is good, he's loving, he's kind, he's powerful, and the greatest lesson we can learn in our lives is simply to trust him. So let's pray now. Father, we praise you that in the face of the things that we worry about and that stress us out and that cause us to fret, 
we praise you. You, you haven't just sort of given us a, a roadmap, a set of answers, but more than that, you've given us a guide, you've given us a person, you've given us Jesus to walk with us every step of the way. Thank you that he is the bread of life. And we pray that day by day, as we find ourselves in the desert, that we would be trusting you, that we will be content to learn to trust you more and more, that we would recognise where we're grumbling, and uh, like the Israelites did, that we'd come back to the cross to see Jesus who died for us, who lived the perfect life and died the perfect death. And then that filled with your Holy Spirit and trusting in your Son, we would live day by day trusting you to give us the bread that we need one day at a time. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.